Okay. So before we start into talking about the book of Ruth, we need to talk a little bit about the nature of uh, narratives in the Old Testament. So remember, the, the Bible is 66 books. It tells one story, but it's made up of all sorts of different types of literature. And so we have some types of literature that are uh, uh, a lot less familiar to us, things like apocalyptic literature, like that'd be like Revelation or parts of Zechariah or Daniel. Uh, there's Hebrew poetry, which is a little bit different than, than the kind of poetry that we uh, know today. And so there's some different rules that apply for, for Hebrew poetry. And then and there's letters and, and all sorts of different stuff. And then, there's, and then there's narratives. And we're a lot more familiar with things like narratives, uh, historical narratives, stories. Um, and 40% uh, uh, more or less of the Old Testament is made up of narrative literature. And so it's really important that we learn how to read it well, because that's a huge chunk of the Old Testament and the Bible, a big chunk of the New Testament, the Gospels and Acts are narratives as well. And so it's really important that we learn how to, to read it well. And I think one of the mistakes that we, we make when we start to learn how to read the Bible is we read it in a very kind of flat way, where we interpret every type of literature in the Bible, every genre of literature in the Bible the exact same way. And so we read um, narratives like they're laws, like their letters, like their poetry. We read kind of everything the same way, and we, we don't really take into account the fact that, that there's, there's some different uh, sort of rules for interpretation for every different type of literature. We do this uh, kind of intuitively with other things in, in our lives. Um, I don't know if anybody actually reads paper newspapers anymore, uh, but when you had a paper newspaper, you could open it up, and within this one, um, this one document, you had multiple different genres of literature, right? You had op-ed pieces, you had um, journalistic reporting, you had the weather report, you had, you know, box scores for sports, you have all sorts of different, you know, you had the wanted ads and stuff, all sorts of different types of literature in this one document. And we know that we don't read those all the same way because we know kind of the rules for how those different types of literature uh, operate. The problem is we just don't, we don't have some of that uh, intuitiveness when it comes to, to scripture. Some of the genres are very foreign to us. And so, uh, and then even a, a genre like narrative, uh, like these stories in the Old Testament, because it's familiar to us, because we have stories, we're used to reading, hearing, watching stories, narratives, movies, books, TV shows. Um, we, we think that maybe because we are more familiar with this, we know how to study it well. Um, but we, I think we can end up making a lot of mistakes in the way that we study it, because we don't necessarily realize that, that some of what we're doing is is um, reading things into the stories that maybe aren't necessarily there. And so we're going to talk uh, as, as we go here about some of the, the, the things that, uh, some of the mistakes that we make. And I think every mistake that I'm going to, to, to talk about today that we make when we read Old Testament 
uh, narratives are things that I've done. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not trying to throw stones at people. I have done all of these things and probably still do some of them if I'm not careful. Uh, so, um, but first, before we, before we talk about some of the mistakes that we make when we read Old Testament narratives, we want to talk about what Old Testament narratives are. Uh, so the first thing is that they're historical stories. We use the word story. Sometimes people can assume that story just means um, made up. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, some, you know, sometimes we just assume, well, that means fiction. But, but story doesn't mean fiction necessarily. Uh, some stories can be fictional. Um, but, but there's lots of stories that, that are non-fictional, that are historical. And so story doesn't necessarily have anything to do or narrative. The idea of a narrative doesn't have anything to do with whether it's true or not. It just has to do with the type of uh, literature that it is. It, that, that it, uh, this, uh, and I use the term story and narrative interchangeably. Um, it, it's a type of literature that includes these specific elements that make it differ from a simple restatement of bare facts. And so a story is different from an encyclopedia article. If you just want kind of a blow-by-blow -blow account of this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, you can read that kind of stuff on Wikipedia. Um, a story is different. There's a difference between reading about something in a Wikipedia article and seeing it in a movie, right? And one of them draws you in a lot more than, than, than the other. And so... Uh, stories are, are calculated to, to draw us into the narrative uh, and, to, and to teach us things and to, and to have us experience in, in some way what's going on in the story. Um, this is a, a quote from um, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart's book, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which is a, a good little kind of introductory uh, book to to Bible study, and I would, uh, one that I'd recommend if you have the ability to uh, pick it up. It's it's not real long, um, but it's, I think it's worth your time to read. How to read the Bible for all it's worth. They say biblical narratives are purposeful stories, retelling the historical events of the past, that are intended to give meaning and direction for a given people in the present. And so it's not just that that biblical stories. Uh, contain all the kind of elements of a narrative. Um, it's, it's also that they, they have a, a, a purpose. They're intentional stories that are, uh, that are communicating something to change uh, or affect those who are, are reading them. And so as we, as we read stories in the Bible, remember none of them are just being told because, well, this is a fun story uh, that I, that I want to tell you. Um, they're being told because th there's a purpose behind them. And ultimately, that purpose uh, finds its origin in God. God is trying to reveal, and, and I shouldn't say trying to reveal, God is revealing himself through these stories. Um, and uh, and it's, I think it's noteworthy that, that so much of the Bible is, is narrative, and that there's something that's particularly effective about narrative for, for revealing things to be true about, about God. Um, uh, it's, I think it's very interesting that, that you know, God could have, uh, I suppose, inspired a, a textbook of systematic theology, but he didn't. Um, 
That doesn't mean that those textbooks are, are wrong or bad. I have a whole shelf of them right here, and I like them. But it is interesting that God has chosen to, to inspire so much of his revealed will in uh, the form of these, of these stories, in his actions in, in history. Uh, but they're not just uh, you know, kind of these bare reports of what happened in the past. They're also uh, written with this intention of giving meaning for the readers in the present. Um, their, uh, their theological histories uh, is what is one uh, way one author put it. Um, so it's historical facts, but it's not it's not uh, giving you all of the facts. Um, it's not it's they're very selective in what they include and exclude, and um, it's important to remember that the primary goal of the narratives is not simply to report the past, it's to tell us something about God, that God is the main character. And so there's lots of things that we might have questions about um, that the authors just skip over because they're not concerned about that. They're concerned about revealing uh, what God is intending to reveal about himself and about the way that he interacts with the world and moves forward his plan of redemption. And so you know, there's, uh, it, it's interesting, as you read Old Testament narratives, you, you get, uh, and, and New Testament narratives, um, the same thing, you will get these, uh, these focus uh, scenes on a very short period of time, and then, and, and that could last for a couple chapters, and then in the course of about two verses, they skip about 10 years, right? If you think about the book of Genesis, you have you have these, these really uh, extraordinary stories about God's interactions with Abraham. Um, and then in the course of like a couple of verses, it's like, and then 17 years later, we have, we're like, well, what was happening for 17 years? And the answer is, well, he didn't tell us because what was really important was not what Abraham was doing for 17 years. It was these times when Abraham interacted with God. That's what was important. So, the, the narrators are very selective in what they in what they choose to include. And so, if it's included in the narrative, it's not random. It, it it's important. It tell, and what the author chooses to include and chooses not to include tells us something about what he thinks is important and what he wants us to 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 take from this. The point that he's trying to make. So that's what Old Testament narratives are. Here's what Old Testament narratives are not. And this is where we start getting into some of the mistakes that we end up making as we uh, talk about Old Testament narratives. First, Old Testament narratives are not, uh, they're not allegories. So an, an allegory is, um, is a type of literature where um, often a story, but all of the, the details in the stories uh, are actually uh, completely symbolic of something else, right? So very famous allegory is Pilgrim's Progress. It's wonderful, um, but it's not, it's not a history. It's, it's, a, it's a fictional story that is intended to communicate something about this timeless truth about uh, becoming a Christian, walking with Christ on your way to, to glory, and includes a lot of things that, that are true, uh, but it's not a historical story. And if you you know go through the Pilgrim's Progress, 
you find that all of these different elements in the story uh, correspond to some kind of spiritual reality. They're all symbolic of something. So the point isn't the story. The point is what the story points to, you know, beyond it, this kind of deeper spiritual meaning. That's not what Old Testament narratives are. Old Testament narratives do contain symbols and patterns that point forward to what God is going to do in the future and that, that all of this stuff comes together in Christ. But we're not supposed to read them allegorically as if either, well, that didn't actually happen. That's just kind of like a parable to, to explain uh, some kind of deeper reality to us. Uh, nor are we to, to read it uh, looking at all of these different details and trying to find the deep spiritual meaning behind them. Um, and I think we'll talk about that in a few minutes. I'll give you some examples of what that looks like, but we can end up with some kind of wacky interpretations uh, when we do that. So Old Testament narratives, not allegories, they're, they're history. They're telling historical facts uh, about what, what happened. Old Testament narratives are also not stories that are primarily intended to teach moral lessons. Now, um, we see lots of examples in the narratives of the, of the Old Testament of people who were um, doing their best to follow God and obey him and what they did. And we see lots of examples, lots of examples of people who were not obeying God and what they did. Um, but we have to be careful just because something is reported in a story in the Old Testament doesn't mean that the author or that God is endorsing what that person did uh, or, or didn't do. Um, the Old Testament stories are not like Aesop's fables where you have a story and then at the end of the story, the point is there's a moral, there's so something that you're supposed to follow uh, at the end. Be like this person, don't be like this person. Um, that, that's not what they're, uh, what they're there for. They're, they're there to, uh, to, to report to us how God has actually acted in human history with all of these flawed people to bring about his purposes. Uh, so the stories do give these examples of, of moral lessons that are taught elsewhere. Usually when people uh, are, are following God, things tend to go better than when they're not following God. We see that in, in, in a lot of these examples. But just because um, people do, uh, do certain things or don't do certain things uh, in the stories, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's intended to teach us some kind of moral lesson. And then Old Testament narratives are not stories about you. I, th this should be obvious, but it's not sometimes in the way that we read uh, the Bible and, and the Old Testament in particular. And I think it has to do with the fact that the Old Testament can feel very foreign to us in a lot of ways. Um, it, you know, there's people whose names we can't pronounce and there's place, places that we don't know where they are and there's customs that are very, very odd. And so in order to, uh, to, to try to, we know we're supposed to read the Old Testament. And so in order to try to read it, um, we say, well, maybe what I just need to be asking is, you know, where am I in the story? You know, which character am I? Uh, and, and when we do that, we make kind of ourselves the center of that, of that story. Say, so, well, this story really is about me. I think we can miss um, this, 
this beautiful tapestry that God is weaving of, of how he's bringing about the, the fruition of his promises and, and, and his purposes uh, in the world. And that's not to say that these narratives don't have significance or, or implications uh, for our lives. It, they absolutely do. And so as we read Ruth, we're going to, to seek to apply what we learn uh, to, to ourselves, absolutely. But we have to remember that, say, the book of Ruth is not about us. Um, the question that we're asking is not, uh, how am I like Ruth today? That's, that's not where we're, uh, we're going with this. So they're, uh, they're not allegories. They're not primarily intended to teach more lessons, and they're not about uh, us. Now, when we're not clear on what Old Testament narratives are and are not, we can fall into some, into some, uh, some pits in terms of uh, reading the way that we read Old Testament narratives, and particularly the way that we apply Old Testament narratives. I think it give me good to, to, to walk through some of these because I certainly have, have done these and, um, and hopefully you'll get a chance to chat a little bit about some of the ways that maybe you have done these as, as well. And I think it's just important to, to note, here are some ways that we do it that are probably not uh, the best ways. We need to be aware of that. Uh, so the first thing that we do uh, often when we read Old Testament narratives is we decontextualize um, the narrative. And that can look a couple different ways. Um, we can uh, decontextualize narratives by doing selective reading. Um, so selective reading would be uh, like, I'm going to read a story, but I'm only going to read certain verses or certain portions of the story, uh, either that makes sense to me or whatever. So there, there's um, there's this 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 long story made up of lots of other little stories in the book of Genesis about Joseph, right? Joseph getting sold into slavery by his brothers, uh, down you know goes down to Egypt, and you know ends up in prison, and there's this whole thing, and it and it takes up the last you know kind of third of the book of Genesis. Um, and so there are a lot of people that they love the story of Joseph, right? They saw the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, his coat of many colors. Um, and they, they love that. And so they read that story, but they skip Genesis 38. Genesis 38 is, a, is this really kind of disturbing account of Judah uh, sort of accidentally sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Um, and you're like, well, why is that in here in this, in the middle of this, this cool story about Joseph? And so we, we skip that. We read selectively. The, the problem is if we miss Genesis 38, we actually miss a really big thing that God is doing, uh, which is, uh, at the end of Genesis 38, Judah basically gets converted. He realizes his wickedness. And from that point, that turning point, Judah becomes this leader among the, the, the brothers, uh, the sons of, of Jacob, to the point where at the end of Genesis, as Jacob is blessing um, his, his sons, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Uh, and so 
Uh, and that becomes really important in the rest of the narrative because it, it's him saying that this ruler that is being promised through the line of Abraham is going to come through the family of Judah. Um, and that's really important for where we end up with Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? So um, if we miss Genesis 38, we miss that. Uh, so when we when we only read the parts that we like or the parts that we understand, we 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 miss it. We need to read uh, the, the whole thing. And if we don't understand something, it's a good place for us to stop and say, now, I wonder why the author included that. That seems kind of odd. Why would he interrupt the story here? Why would he say that? It forces us to think um, about what's what's going on. That's good. We can also decontextualize um, by doing this disconnected reading. And so that's that would be reading... Um, stories in the Old Testament uh, as kind of standalone episodes, st standalone stories that have no connection to, to, to anything else. Uh, and, and so this would be like if we read the book of Ruth and we said, wow, that was a really cool love story between Ruth and Boaz, but we don't read it in connection to what comes before it or what comes after it or how it connects to the entirety of the storyline of the Bible, because that's going to have a significant impact on uh, the way that we understand what the book of Ruth means, uh, what the central message of it means. And the central message is not primarily about a really cool love story between these two people. But that is, that, that's all, you know, there's uh, this, uh, this sort of romance between Ruth and, and, and Boaz in it, but that's, that's not the point. Um, and if we miss how how the book of Ruth connects to the book of Judges, how it connects to the book of First Samuel, how it fits within the storyline of what God is doing uh, in and through his people to redeem them, I think that we miss a huge uh, part of what, what God is revealing about himself and his plan through the book of Ruth. So we want to make sure that we do our best to um, not to disconnect things from... Um, from all, all the parts around them. So uh, then we talked about this a little bit already, allegorizing. Um, we just assume that the narrative's uh, meaning is symbolic, it's hidden, it's unrelated to all of these, these other uh, things in the narrative it, itself. Um, and this is a very popular way for people to read the Bible. So um, to use the example of a story many of us, maybe most of us are familiar with David and Goliath, a way that David and Goliath can get allegorized uh, sometimes is, so, so you do, you can allegorize all the details, that is, you can take all of the details in the story and give them this special spiritual significance. So um, people will say, David picked up five smooth stones. You know, how many you know, if you heard sermons or been in Bible studies, like, what, you know, what were the five stones? And then people, you know, say, well, it was these five virtues, or it was these five, it was five stones for the five sins, or the five, you know, and they, and they read all of these, these really kind of hyper-spiritual details into the stones, and it's like, it miss, misses the point. The point is, David just picked up five stones. Um, that's just a historical detail. He only needed one, uh, to, to kill Goliath. Uh, so, and when we allegorize the details and, and make it all of this kind of symbolic meaning that's unrelated, like you wouldn't draw it from, from reading the text. Um, you know, it would be different if, if 
So David picked up five smooth stones and then the narrator makes a comment that says, by the way, these represent these five things. Then we could say, now, now we know. But, but there's kind of, when we start allegorizing, there's no, there's no uh, control uh, over it. You can just kind of make it say what, whatever you, you want it to say. And that's, that's not generally the way that, that um, reading scripture works. So be careful not to allegorize all of these different details and say, well, this represents this. Um, that's, that's not necessarily the case. And then we don't want to allegorize the whole story. Um, uh, we don't want to give the, the, whole, the entirety of the story, not just the details in the story, but the entirety of the story, this kind of symbolic uh, meaning that it was never uh, intended to have. Um, and so uh, that you know, might be something uh, like, well, the story of David and Goliath, it's not really about David and Goliath. It's really about, about conquering your fears. It's like, well, I'm not really sure that that's the case. I think if you make the story about that, you're missing a huge part of what God is intending to, to do through that story. So, um, so we decontextualize, we allegorize, and then the last one is we personalize or individualize the narrative. This is another one that we think is really popular with people, again, because the Old Testament feels very foreign. And so the more that we can insert ourselves uh, into it, the, the easier it is for us to kind of get our get our hands around, you know, why it's relevant to us. Uh, but we end up uh, we end up getting our hands around in terms of relevance. It's actually not what the Bible says at all. Uh, it's what we are kind of imposing into the Bible, right? So what we want to do when we study the Bible is do exposition. We want to expose what's in the Bible. We want to draw out of the Bible, what's there, rather than doing imposition, which is imposing our uh, ideas and preconceptions on what's in the Bible, and that's uh, that's a that's a fundamental distinction that's really important when we study Scripture. Is always want to be saying, and, and, and anytime I I teach, my my hope is that what I'm doing is I'm is I'm trying to show you not just what the Bible means, but how I got to what the Bible means, so you can see that I'm not just making this up. I didn't just sit here in my room and think, oh, this would be a cool thing to talk about for a little bit, and I'll just use this verse to, to, to talk about it. But what I'm trying to do is say, watch how the, the author does this, look how this works, um, and, and trying to draw out from the scripture what it means rather than say, here's this thing that I want to talk about. Now I'm going to go find a verse that fits it, which is the way that I think probably the first time I ever preached uh, or, or taught kind of a, a you know, standing up a big group is totally the way that I taught. I decided, here's what I want to talk about. Let me go find a verse. Because uh, nobody had taught me that that's not really the way that you, that you teach. Even though I was learning how to study the Bible, nobody had taught me, yeah, but when you teach, you just teach the Bible. I remember when I first discovered being able to study kind of a verse by verse and teach that, that expositional way, I was like, wow, this is really freeing. I don't have to make stuff up. I can just teach what the Bible says. It was really cool. I was like, "Wow, maybe I can do this because I'm not creative enough to come up with stuff on my own, which is really good because that's not what I'm supposed to do. So personalizing. Um, it's assuming that the narratives are, uh, is about you. So David and Goliath, you personalize it by saying, um, the point of David and Goliath is what are the giants in your life? Um, and 
like when I hear that, I'm like, well, that's not the point of David and Goliath. The, uh, this happened when I, when I heard I was at a church one time, like ten years ago, and um, the guy uh, preaching was preaching on the story of Joseph, and so there's part of the story of Joseph where um, his brothers throw him into the pit, and the the kind of the crescendo of the sermon was the the pastor saying, "What pit are you in today?" And, you know, that, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, this sermon kind of, um, like, because I'm like, the point of that narrative is not, boy, you're a lot like Joseph. What pit are you in? Uh, the point is, what's God doing? Uh, it's not, it's not about me putting myself in Joseph's shoes. It's about me reflecting on who God is and what he's doing. Uh, and, and so, uh, there's a couple different ways that we, that we, uh, over-personalized or inappropriately personalized. When I say personalized, the, the narratives apply to us. That's absolutely true, but they're not about us. Um, so a couple different ways that we do this. When we moralize, so we assume that the meaning of the story is this moral lesson for us to obey. So in David and Goliath, um, the primary lesson uh, somebody might say is uh, David uh, beat Goliath when Saul didn't. The primary lesson is be bold and brave like David. Don't be cowardly like Saul. It's like, okay, um, again, I don't think that's the point of the narrative. The point is not to get you to be brave, not cowardly. Um, I think it's to, to tell us something about what God is doing to be faithful to his promises. Um, but when we moralize, we, we kind, of, kind of cut God out of the picture and just say, well, what is it that I need to do or not do? That's the only thing I, I want to know, forgetting that narratives are not necessarily intending to teach us those things as their primary you know, objective. There are lots of other parts of scripture that do give us some very specific commands on what we're to do and not do and what pleases God. That's not what the narratives are, are doing. And then another way that we do it is by misappropriating. We, we, uh, we appropriate something in the passage and say, well, this is the proper application of the passage. Um, it, it's, we, we, we uh, are, are to imitate something that's, that's there, uh, but what we end up doing is misappropriating that and, and applying it to our lives. So David and Goliath, uh, David refused to wear Saul's armor because it was too big for him and he wasn't used to it. And, and he knew that the Lord would protect him. And somebody might read that and right now think, well, you know what that means is that um, wearing, you know, wearing all this other stuff, uh, is, is not trusting the Lord. And so when I go out, I shouldn't wear a mask or gloves because that's not trusting the Lord. Uh, and so I want to be like David and trust the Lord. I'm not going to go out and mask and gloves because I don't need them. I'm not used to them. The Lord will protect me. I don't think that's a proper application of the Bible. I think that's foolish. Um, and, and so, but, but when we misappropriate a detail like that in the text, we, we end up walking away thinking if I, uh, or we can end up walking away thinking, if I go out wearing a mask and gloves uh, during the coronavirus, it's going to indicate a lack of faith. I don't want to. I don't want to have a lack of faith like Saul. I want to be like David and and be brave. I think we've missed uh, the 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 point of the text there. So these are different ways that we think can misread the Old Testament. And you know, I have made all of these mistakes many, many times. Um, 
And so this is just uh, something to help us as we are learning to study the Bible better, to be aware, here are some ways that, that we need to be, to be careful that we're not uh, seeking to, to interpret the Bible. And um, if this is, you know, if we find ourselves uh, kind of drifting into these, it's a good, uh, a good way for us to, to kind of put the brakes on and course correct and say, okay, if this is not the way that I'm to apply the Bible, how, how can I understand what I am supposed to be doing? And forces us to, to think more about how we can grow in our ability to, to study and interpret the Bible. Uh, the narratives are made up of, uh, just in general, kind of their, their structure, uh, made up of several different elements. Um, there's, there's a context. Uh, so that's, you know, where the narrative is situated historically, geographically, and within the whole flow of the story of Scripture. And so asking what's, what's going on around, um, the, the, uh, around the story. Um, you have uh, the narrator, uh, so the, the kind of the, the voice who's writing the story. It's ultimately God. Uh, right, God inspired it. So God is the narrator, and he's doing it through a human author. And because the human author is writing under the inspiration of God for the purpose of writing the narrative, the human author is omniscient. Um, so the human author is able to, to write things that we wouldn't know otherwise about the narrative uh, if we were just uh, reading the dialogue and watching the action. So it's like the narrator is giving a voiceover um, for, for the story that we wouldn't maybe otherwise um, you know, be aware of. And ultimately that's, that's because it's, it's God who is writing the story uh, through the, the, the human author. Um, so the narrator, there's characters. Um, there's lots of characters. You know, you see all sorts of different people in, in these narratives, but really um, the ones who talk are the most important. Um, uh, the particularly in Hebrew narrative, um, there, there's a lot of characters uh, or, or people who really end up being nothing more than sort of um, uh, glorified uh, props within the story. Um, because the, the story is really focused on the people who are, are interacting and talking. So if a, if a character has dialogue, it means that they're, they're uh, relatively important for, for the sake of the story. Uh, there's lots of people who never talk, and you see this in Ruth. Um, the beginning of the book of Ruth, there's a bunch of characters that are introduced, and in Ruth 1, there's only like two people who talk. It's Ruth and Naomi. Well, it's because they're the most, uh, two of the three most important humans in the book, uh, and everybody else doesn't, doesn't talk. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the, the author focusing on them, trying to say, this is where your focus needs to be. Where, where the talking is, that's where the focus is. Um, so we don't learn anything about the way that, uh, you know, about uh, Ruth's uh, husband who dies or Naomi's other, other son or her husband. We just, we don't learn much about them at all or Ruth's sister-in-law. Um, we don't learn a ton about any of them. They don't talk. Um, and so we only learn a lot more about Ruth and anyway, that's where the, the focus is. So the ones who talk are generally the most important um, and God is always the main character. And that's a really important thing for us to remember as we read Old Testament narratives, is that um, 
we have all of these humans, but really the, the consistent character from beginning to end of the whole story is God. The Bible is God's story. Um, we, we get to, uh, as human beings, get to be a little part in it, but it's his story. And so one of the questions that we're always wanting to ask is what is this narrative showing us about uh, who God is and what he has done in history and what that reveals about him? Um, and so it is interesting that as we as we look at what the, the biblical authors choose to include or what God has inspired to be included in scripture, he, there's a whole bunch of stuff he doesn't tell us about these people and their times and, uh, and, and all sorts of things. The things that he, he tells us are the things that tell us something about him. Like these narratives are recorded because of how God is interacting uh, with with people um, that we're not getting a uh, just a, a kind of a bare fact by fact history of the people of Israel. We're getting a history of the people of Israel that is theologically focused. It's about God's interaction with these people. So God is the is the main character. And then the the narrative, the story has a plot. Um, there's a setting, so here's where the story begins. There's a tension or a problem or a conflict, something that's, that moves the story forward that needs resolution. There's rising action. It's, uh, the, the kind of the, as the, the, the action within the story uh, continues to build the tension up to a, a, final, uh, a final turning point or climax. This is the key moment in the narrative. Um, and is probably a big clue to the to the narrative's meaning and, and what the author is trying to communicate, and then a resolution. And so, generally speaking, and this is not just Old Testament narrative. This is kind of most uh, narratives, um, you know, even you know, movies, TV shows, books, and so forth. It, it kind of looks like this. So you have a, a setting, and there's there's some kind of conflict or or tension, and that tension builds and builds and builds and builds, and then. There's this climactic turning point um, that that uh, begins to resolve. This is the big, um, the big crescendo of the story, and then there's resolution. And so you could follow that pattern through, you know, just about any movie you watch or uh, or or biblical narrative you read. It's generally how they're they're structured. And so that uh, framework is going to form the sort of the way that we we try to read through Ruth as we get kind of identify. Okay, what's the setting? What's the tension? What's you know what builds up to this turning point? What's the turning point or the climax? Or, you know this uh, <coughs> this key moment, and then how is it resolved? And and uh, we're gonna you know, try to draw some some information about the meaning from there. Um, real quick, one thing to keep in mind: we talked about disconnected reading. We want to make sure that we're doing our best to connect. Um, the the story that we're reading to all of the other stories around it and see how it's a part of a whole. And so there's there's these multiple levels of narrative that we need to, to try to keep in mind as best we can as we're reading. Um, so at, at the top is what we call the meta-narrative. So meta is just a, a, a Greek word that means above. And so you know, we call it the meta-narrative. It's just the overarching story. It's the story that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. 
It's the whole story of the Bible. Um, and so that's the, the biggest story, to, to borrow the title from a, a, a children's Bible that I love. And um, so we have to keep that in mind. And then but, but the overarching story is, is itself made up of uh, a bunch of little stories uh, that we call episodes. So you can think about it like a TV show. You know, the whole TV show uh, in terms of from, from uh, the be its beginning to its end is, is the story and it's made up of episodes. But then within each episode, there are scenes. So you can think about this in the same way with the Bible. So you have this overarching story and then within the overarching story, there are episodes. Sometimes those correspond to books of the Bible like Ruth. Ruth is sort of its own episode. Um, there are uh, others that are, uh, that are more, you know, that multiple uh, episodes within a single book. So Genesis, there are kind of multiple different uh, episode units within Genesis. You have the story of Joseph, and that is made up of lots of little stories. And you have the story of Abraham, and that's made up of lots of stories. Those are all episodes. And then within those episodes are the little stories, these scenes uh, that um, they, they make up an episode and they move the plot forward. And so Ruth is its own episode within this overarching story of the Bible. And Ruth is made up of four four scenes that correspond nicely to the four chapters of Ruth, although that's not always the case in biblical narratives. Uh, they don't always line up with, with the chapter divisions. So, but as we read narrative literature, um, in, in order to, to do it well, it means we need to be conscious of these, these different levels and the way that they interlock, right? So that, that the scenes make up an episode and so the, the the meaning of the episode is going to be to be drawn from how these scenes all fit together and then the meta narrative the the overarching story is made up of these uh, episodes and, and and draws meaning on how all those fit together and the way that we understand a single episode or a single scene depends on where it fits within this bigger framework um, so uh, that's just something something important to keep in mind. I, I was going to give you an example, but for the sake of time, I'm going to, I'm going to skip it. Um, but it was really nerdy. It was a Star Wars example. So I know Brett would love it, Amy. Yeah, I'm getting a thumbs up. Um, so, but the, we, we just, we, we see, uh, th there are examples of, of that kind of storytelling in our own experience that we, we're aware of. We just have to remember that the Bible works very much in the same way or maybe it's the reverse the way that we tell stories is is uh based whether we realize it or not on the way that the that god tells his story um I think maybe it was c.s lewis that, that said every story in the world is really just a shadow of the one real story uh, so it's good to remember okay a couple couple quick notes on just kind of steps that we're going to work through as we as we look at uh Old Testament narrative. Um, as we make observations, we want to want to be thinking in terms of those scenes, not necessarily verses, paragraphs, or chapters. So the verses and chapters in the Bible are not in, uh, inspired. Those those numbers, um, the words are, but the numbers aren't. Those were added later just to help us find our way around the Bible. Uh, and so, but sometimes they can they can break at points that are not necessarily helpful for reading. Um, so. Uh, but uh, we, we don't want to pay all that much attention to the chapters or verses. It happens to be in Ruth that it that it works well. 
Uh, that's not always the case. Um, and, you know, when we study like, a, a, like one of Paul's letters, we have to go, I mean, we are going like a little bit at a time, right? We're going a couple verses uh, at a time, like eight verses, because everything is wound so tightly uh, in terms of the, the way that the argument's made. And that's because of the type of literature that it is. It's different in narratives. Um, we, need to, we need to think about big chunks because the meaning is not found in all of these little uh, kind of uh, connections necessarily. It's, it's in the entirety of this, this scene or this story unit. So we want to look at, at whole scenes. And so rather than doing a couple verses at a time, we're doing a whole chapter at a time. And that's just the, the way that we have to do it with, with the narrative. Um, it also means that it, like we we don't um, maybe break it down quite as dramatically as we would say one of Paul's letters or uh, or a a um, you know a speech or you know, preaching by Jesus or something like that. Um, it's not to say that all of these these words uh, are inspired. Of course, they're inspired and they're and they're profitable. We have to uh, remember how the literature works. And so we need to think big picture in terms of scenes. Um, and we want to look at the context. So we talk about where does the story occur in the, in the overall storyline? Uh, where does it occur within the episode that it's in? Um, and, and then also then think about hearing the story before you study it. We can jump into trying to break it down so much that we don't actually read and listen to the story. Remember, these were their stories, and so they, they in the first place, were not meant to, to be broken down uh, kind of in, in the verse-by-verse verse way that, that we study. They're meant to be heard and to have an effect on the readers in, in their hearing. And so we want, before we, we break it down and study it, and we do want to do that, we want to hear what the story says. And that's one of the reasons why I think reading over and over again the story is really good. The more you can become familiar with the story and try to try to put aside some of um, the, the preconceptions we have and just listen to the, to the story. Um, that, can be, that can be really good. Um, so we want to hear the story before we examine it piece by piece. I said God could have inspired an encyclopedia article if he wanted to in order to communicate the same truth, but he didn't. He inspired a story. So we want to hear and experience the story. Um, and, then, and then we're going we're gonna to study it. And then we just follow the plot line, right? We, we try to break down the, the story in terms of its plot and say, all right, what's the setting? Um, what's the, who, who are the characters? What's the, the problem or the conflict or the tension? Um, what's the turning point? And then, and, and how is the problem resolved? And, and as we, particularly as we look at, um, What's the problem? What's the turning point? Kind of the twist or the the, the climax? Um, we're going to get a big clue into what the author is intending to communicate to us. And sometimes we can end up focusing on one thing when when in reality we're we're missing the point that the author wants us to to see in terms of what what this you know what this climactic moment is or something like that. So we want to look at these as observations and then. From there, I uh, want to find the, the narrator's main point. And so we're taking our observations, we're asking questions about them, and, and, uh, and trying to figure out what is the, if, if you were to sit down with the author, what would 
he or she tell you that this is intended to mean? Uh, why, why are they telling you this story? Uh, why are they including this story in, in scripture? Um, and that's, we want to go with what, what did it mean for the author? What it, because meaning is not found in the reader, it's found in the mind of the author. So we're to understand what is the author intended to mean, not what does it mean to us. Um, don't worry, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this um, uh, PowerPoint so that you can have all the notes, so you don't need to scramble. I probably should have told you that before, so you can stop you know writing down if you want to. Um, so find the narrator's main point. So ask questions like, what does the narrator tell you that you wouldn't know if you only have the plot line? If you only were observing the actions and the dialogue and, and stuff, you would, you would get maybe one thing, but does the narrator tell you things that you wouldn't know otherwise? That's probably significant and, and important for the narrator's main point. Uh, what's highlighted in the dialogue? Is there stuff that's repeated? Are there words that are repeated? There are some words that get repeated in, in the book of Ruth that are significant. We'll talk about that. Um, you know, what's, what is, what's highlighted in the dialogue, that's probably going to be significant for understanding. Um, you know, there's lots of, lots of dialogue that's not included in, uh, in the story. And so what does get included is, is probably important. Right? There's lots of, so to speak, lines that got cut. Um, and, and so what's left is what's important for us to know. What's the climactic point in the narrative? So where does, where's, where's that twist or that turning point? Um, and then how, as, you, as you start to kind of put all of these pieces together, how does that affect the way that you understand what the author's uh, main point in telling the story is? If you were to sit down and say, why did you, why did you write this? What would, what would they say? And then always remember to ask, what's God doing? Because he's, he's the main character. So where does God fit in? to this. Um, and so generally speaking, um, God is going to fit somewhere in the main point of the story. Um, even uh, in, in places like the book of Esther, where God's name is not mentioned, right? You, you never get an explicit mention of God in the book of Esther, but it's pretty clear that the main point of the, of the book of Esther is what God is doing, uh, despite the fact that he's not mentioned by name. Um, in fact, his absence, uh, his supposed absence, his absence in terms of, of, of the word God, only serves to highlight uh, his, his deafening presence uh, in some way. So all of that's what God's doing. And then doing our best to connect it to the context around, around it. How does it, uh, how does this scene connect to what comes before it and what comes after it? As it connect to the overall storyline, um, because we're gonna we're gonna draw our understanding of of the significance of, of the story uh, through how how this this main point connects to everything else that that God is is doing. Right? They're not these standalone stories. Everything's connected. It's an organic whole. So how does the the scene serve to well move the episode story? So how does say the scene uh, the story in Ruth one served to move the whole story of Ruth forward. Uh, and then how does it uh, contribute or as a part of the whole book of Ruth, how does it contribute to how we understand the whole storyline? 
uh, no scene is included as a rabbit trail. There's nothing random uh, in, in the Bible. It's all purposeful. All right, and then real quick, we'll do so just a tiny little bit of background on Ruth. This is not going to be much um, because there's a bunch of stuff that we just don't know, like the author who wrote Ruth. We don't know. It doesn't say. Nowhere else in the Bible says it, uh, which means it's not really that important for us to know who wrote the book of Ruth. We know that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, that's what the, the ancient Hebrews believed. That's what the Lord Jesus believed. So that's what we believe. Um, so ultimately, the author is, is God. But we don't know who the human author is. Um, but uh, probably not written uh, in its final form until quite a bit later after uh, the events in which it takes, uh, it takes place. Um, you get comments, I, th I think in chapter four, there's a comment about, uh, you know, and this was the custom in Israel at the time. Uh, and so a comment like that might indicate to us that, that whoever is, is writing this uh, is living a significant time later and is explaining to the audience that he's writing to, uh, this is the custom. If it was written right then, they probably wouldn't have to write that because everybody would know that's the custom. Right? So, um, so it's probably written quite a bit later. We don't know when. Sometime before 400 BC, um, but we don't know exactly when. We would say certainly the author is probably drawing on uh, a long tradition and maybe other sources uh, to, to put together his narrative under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so uh, we don't precisely know the audience. I mean, initially it would be, it would be um, the Jews, um, but where exactly and when, uh, we, we just don't know. There's uh, lots of different guesses and things like that, but um, we can only speculate on some of that stuff. And then the context. So where are we in the, the overarching story of Scripture? Here's my fun chart. So we are, uh, so uh, scripture starts here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything's great. Adam and Eve live in Eden. Uh, and, uh, but real quick, things, uh, things get bad. Adam and Eve sin. Everything gets terrible. And then uh, in Genesis, so Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, things continue to devolve and get worse and worse and worse for humanity. Uh, but but at the, at, in the middle of Genesis 3, God promises that he is going to send a, a redeemer uh, who's going to crush the head of the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, who's going to deal with sin and its consequences. And so that becomes a very important uh, piece of, of this promise that's going to, to uh, run through the Bible. Uh, and then uh, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation. And it's through you that I'm going to bring this deliverer uh, through your family. And so Genesis traces that family line, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to to Joseph. And then, uh, like I said before, in the middle of this Joseph narrative, we find out that Judah is actually going to end up, one of the sons of Jacob is actually going to end up being uh, this, uh, the one through whom this, this king is going to, to come. And so you have 
Uh, it's going to come through, you know, this, this king, this coming deliverer is going to be uh, a son of, of Adam, but it's also going to be a son of Abraham, and it's also going to be a son of Judah. Um, and then we, Genesis ends with the people in exile in Egypt, uh, and uh, then they're enslaved, and they cry out to God, and God raises up for them a deliverer named Moses, uh, uh, played by Charlton Heston, playing himself, playing Moses. And uh, Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and uh, God establishes this covenant with the people. Uh, and says, you are going to be my special people. I'm going to be your God. You need to be distinct from all the nations around you. I'm going to give you this land, and you need to be different from the people there in order to display who I am, my holiness, and through you, I'm going to, to, to uh, you're going to be a light to the nations, and through you is going to come this, this deliverer through your, this nation. And so um, they establish this covenant, they try to enter the promised land. Things don't go well. They wander around for 40 years. Eventually, they enter the promised land through Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And then they, uh, they, they conquer the land, or at least parts of it. The people are in Israel, in the land of Canaan. But they haven't driven out all of these foreign nations that God commanded them to. Uh, and so... And then Joshua dies, and, and leadership in, in Israel passes to a series of judges, uh, not, uh, not legal judges, but more like military chieftains uh, who, who govern little parts of, of Israel and, and are, are raised up to, to, to protect Israel from uh, its enemies. But if you have read the book of Judges, basically... Uh, most of the judges were terrible people. Uh, and Israel just gives, goes into this spiral of wickedness uh, in, in a period of Judges. And the book of Judges ends with just this really terrible, really terrible stories about, about what the people in Israel are doing. And in fact, the people of Israel have become exactly like the nations around them. And there's this repeated refrain in the book of Judges in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it highlights, this is the last line of the book of Judges, that highlights the fact that um, one of the principal problems in, in Israel is there is no godly king. The people have rejected God as their king, and their leaders are anything but godly. There's no king in Israel uh, sort of leaving this void of God has promised a king who's going to come through the line of Adam, Abraham, and Judah, but right now there's no king in Israel. And the first line of the book of Ruth is, in the days when the judges governed. So Ruth takes place right in the middle of this, this period of Israel's history. And, and I think that's really important uh, because that's going to affect the way that we read and understand the kind of big picture meaning of the book of Ruth. Um, so Judges is what comes right right before it. It leads into 1 Kings, uh, which is the, the story about the, uh, or uh, leads into 1 Samuel, rather, the story of, um, of Saul and then David. And so Ruth nestled in between them to ask, well, why is Ruth there? What's uh, what's the author trying to do in connecting it to the book of Judges explicitly? 
Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll talk some about that as we, as we go. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited because I think some of the connections that are, that are made there are really, really cool. And um, so what the author is doing is, is um, really wonderful. And I'm so excited to talk about that. Content, you know, we're going to go through Ruth, so we're not going to spend any, really any time on this right now, but just remembering it's not primarily a love story about Ruth and Boaz. There is, uh, the, the, the story of Ruth and Boaz is certainly a centerpiece of, of, the, of the book, but really that's just the stage on which God is displaying his loving kindness, his covenant mercy to fulfill his promises to his people. And that's ultimately what we're going to do. And we see that as we look, and we'll talk about this as we go a little bit, but if we look at Ruth 1.1 and we look at Ruth 4.20, the first verse and the last verse of the book, we find um, that, that that may be what, what the author is wanting to highlight, God's, God's faithfulness to his people, and in particular, his faithfulness to bring about one particular promise. So um, I'm not going to do the, the, the big reveal yet, but we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. So basic outline of Ruth is a prologue and an epilogue, and then the, the narrative itself is uh, four scenes that correspond really to the four chapters. Um, chapter one is uh, on the road, chapter two is in the field, chapter three is at the threshing floor, and chapter four is at the gate. And, um, and we'll see as we go, kind of each of those scenes follows that pattern of setting, tension, rising, action, climax, resolution, uh, basically. And so we'll, as we work through um, the, these chapters, we will we'll try to follow that pattern to see kind of uh, how the author is connecting all these things together. So for next week, I would say just try to read Ruth at least twice. If you can, that'll help. The more you read it, the better it'll be. And then um, just for context, there's a video. Um, and and uh, like I said, I'm going to give you this PowerPoint so you'll be able to, to click on the link or um, maybe when I, when I post the materials, I'll shoot the link out as well bibleproject.com slash explore slash judges. It's going to give you the context of the book of Judges so you can kind of get an idea of here's what was going on around this story in Ruth. And it's maybe about 10 minutes long, uh, but I think it's worth your time to, to watch and just be familiar with it um, as, as we read because uh, a lot of what you're going to be hearing in that video about what's going on in the book of Judges um, would be kind of what would be conjured up in the, the minds of the, of the initial readers when they heard in the days when the judges governed. That's going to bring up a very specific kind of uh, understanding for what's, for what's going on. So, all right. 